great to be with you again. We're carrying on in our journey uh, through the first letter of John. John wrote this letter to a group of Christians in Ephesus, and uh, a really interesting uh, little section that we're looking at this afternoon, which I hope we can consider whether you're able to be here uh, in person or whether you're uh, catching up in, on, uh, online later on or watching live online. I hope the purpose of today is for us to be able to take this really short reading. I think it's possibly one of the shortest readings we've ever had uh, in Christchurch, whether we can take this reading uh, and whether we can engage in it in such a way that it informs the way we live on a day-to-day basis. It challenges, it encourages maybe, or it challenges or confronts us so that our lives might be consistent with what we claim our lives to be. That's a really important thing that John is trying to engage with his uh, readers on. We're looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17. Don't know whether you've ever faced this, um, the problem of inconsistency in authors. I'm going to be referring to um, one author today, uh, Tolkien, who I often refer to. One of the fascinating things about Tolkien is he was so passionate about his own consistency is that he wrote huge backgrounds, whole stories about the history of his characters. I think he was trying to create a world which was expressing such consistency so that when we came to some of his bigger stories, all of the background, all of the stories of the history of the characters was consistent. When I was back uh, doing some studies many years ago, one of the great writers that everybody was talking about in management terms was a guy called Tom Peters. He wrote a book, uh, In Search of Excellence, um, and then he wrote a book, In Pursuit of Excellence, and uh, over time, some of the companies that he identified as these kind of real successful companies weren't quite so successful. Uh, and so he, he wrote another book called uh, Thriving on Chaos. And, um, and then a little bit later on, he wrote a book called Reimagine. <laughs> and it seemed to me as though gradually Tom was reflecting maybe on some of the stuff that he'd written earlier on. Anybody who's kind of into management theory, you can debate with me later on. Um, he, was, he was reflecting on some of the stuff that he wrote later earlier on. He's saying, maybe, that, maybe I wasn't right there. That's great for uh, somebody to be able to do as an author. However, and here's the thing, what do we do in a situation where we come to the Bible and it appears as though an author in the Bible and the Bible itself seems inconsistent. What do we do with that? Because John, as an author, who's writing both his gospel, somewhere between 9510 AD, most of the scholars think, and his letters, similar kind of time, he seems inconsistent. Let's have a look at what it says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. He says this, do not love the world, or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. He's making a really big statement there, isn't he? He's saying, do not love the world. 
I want to take you all the way back to one of his gospel uh, verses, probably one of the most well-known verses in the whole of the Bible, where John writes this in John chapter 3 and verse 16, which many of you will know, he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's here's an interesting contrast here, isn't there? On the one hand, John is saying, do not love the world. On the other hand, he's saying, God loved the world. What's going on? How is this working out? How, How do we come to terms with what John is saying in these couple of verses? Does it mean that God's love for the world is okay, but we shouldn't love the world? That's one thing. How do we work that out? Does it mean that John is inconsistent? It's even more of a challenge. Or does it point to a greater truth that can inspire our day-to-day living now? How we live today now. First thing I want to do is just spend a few minutes looking at that idea in 1 John, the idea of the world, Then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the idea of the world in John chapter 3 in the Gospel. Then we're going to think a little bit about the contrast and how it helps us navigate our lives and live a life which is consistent with what we claim our lives to be if we are believers in Jesus Christ. If you're looking on at this idea of the Christian faith, can I also encourage you It points to us today what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and what it means to have a helpful, thought-through approach to the world that we live in today. So first thing that I want to say is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, I think John is talking here about the idea of our identity being in the world. Our own identity, who we are. I find my identity in the world. Look at how it it unfolds. He almost gives an explanation of the world that he's defining in verse 16. He says, don't love the world, and then he says, for everything in the world, everything in the world, all the world stuff, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And I've deliberately there taken uh, effectively seven words, I think it is, out of the middle of that verse, and have helped us see, hopefully, what that verse is saying. He's saying, for everything in the world comes not from the Father, but from the world. What's the bit of the world that he's talking about? He's saying, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of of life. That's the definition in this particular little bit of writing that John is using to describe the world. He's saying that the world, when we come to 1 John chapter 2, the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust is a a fascinating um, word that he uses here. We tend to use lust in one particular context. 
We use it from a, a sexual perspective. But you see, he uses the word also here, the lust of the eyes. What is it? What's this definition of lust? I went to, I went to the, the, the kind of the place where probably all of us go because it's free. We go to Wikipedia and we say, well, Wikipedia, what does lust, what do you tell us lust is? Lust, according to Wikipedia, is a psychological force producing intense desire for an object or a circumstance while already having a significant amount of the desired object. Isn't that fascinating? saying it's when we absolutely crave for something which we've probably already got. Something that we already have some possession of. But we want more, and we want more, and we want what we've got isn't enough. I need desperately more and more. A passionate overmastering Desire or craving is the description according to Merriam-Webster. A passionate or overmastering desire or craving. I think that's really helpful. And I think when we look around at, at how we are engaging in our society and our culture today, I don't think this verse could be more apt for the social state that we tend to live in as we are today. We are sitting in a world where we are desperate for more and more of what we already have. But John is kind of personalizing it here. And he's saying it's when, when you desperately clamor for that, when you want to hold on to that, when you're grasping, over-desiring for that, then it doesn't come from the Father. And it is, according to John, from the world. Look at what he says. The flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. Let's go through them briefly, one by one. The flesh. What can I feel? What can I feel? We live in a world where the beauty of physical relationship has been twisted into something which we desire more and more and more, and different, and rethought out when we already probably have some relationship. We've created a world where the desire of the flesh has become a consuming, overwhelming desire. It's not anymore something which is good. It's something which is desperate in our social thinking. And what John 2,000 years ago is putting his finger on, prodding at the issues of our hearts, and he's saying, even today, 
2,000 years later, we are no different to Ephesus in the first century. We are desperately wanting more and more. We are not satisfied. What can I feel? Pride of the eyes. I think what he's driving at here is this. What can I own? What can I feel and what can I own? What can I get a hold of? What objects can I now take possession of? I don't know about you, but we had a conversation. We've just been a couple of weeks holiday. We've just come back and and we always feel like this. We often go away at the back end of the summer holidays and, and we always feel like this. We're coming back in, new term, new start, all of that kind of thing. And it's almost, hate to say it, but I am going to be the first to say it. We're on the wind up to Christmas. We're on the way. Uh, and any of you that are faced with the challenge of buying gifts for people, I think you will probably experience the challenge that is this. What do you buy when we've already got all the stuff that we need? But, but, we are not satisfied. There is a desire, there is a lust of the eyes, there is a looking out and a desperate need for more of what we probably already have. Isn't it so powerful? 2,000 years ago, we think of the ancient world and we kind of imagine this this kind of second-rate, unsophisticated world and John's writing to a world which is no different to ours. I don't know what the desires of the eyes were back in ancient Ephesus. But I'm pretty sure it's going to be similar to ours. It might not be Hugo Boss, but it's probably Purple Cloth. It might not be Chanel, but it's probably Frankincense or some other exotic. It's the desires of what we already have that we think are going to satisfy and we lust for those things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the final one is the pride of life. I think that is, that is just amazing and pertinent What is he saying about the pride of life? He's saying this to ancient Ephesus. He's saying, you are in danger and you are straying away from what you believe to be yourselves, your identity in Jesus, if you have such a desire to be able to portray to the rest of the world pride in the life that you're living. I think John could almost have written into 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. He could almost have written, living my best life. He could. Because that's what living my best life is, actually, isn't it? It's about being able to say, look at the life that I've got. 
It's saying, look how satisfied I am in my life. Everybody else, look at the life that I've got. Let me portray in front of all of you the life that I've got. John is writing in such a way to say to us today, I think, when your identity is in the physical and the feeling, when your identity is in possessions, and when your identity is in what you believe you have achieved, you can say, without a doubt, that it is the world, according to the definition of John chapter 1, and it does not come from the Father. I mentioned I was going to talk about Tolkien twice today. He captures this brilliantly with Gollum and the precious ring. He takes possession of the ring. And if you follow through the idea that Tol Tolkien unfolds, it's this. He takes possession of the ring, but actually in the end, the ring takes possession of him. The ring consumes him. I think what John is saying is this. Sexual desire, possessions, and pride of life, which you think you are taking possession of, will take possession of you. What you idolize will become your master. What you hold on to more desperately than anything else will eventually control you. That's what John is saying. He's saying this is the idea of the things that the world in this context will portray before you and will say this is more important than anything else. You have got to have this. You've got to have this. You are dissatisfied unless you've got this. You are not satisfied in your relationship right now. You must have something else. You are not satisfied in your possessions now. You must have something else. You are not satisfied in the way that your life is portrayed in before everybody else. You must portray it in a different way. And you know what? When we talk about that, and when I as a preacher talk about that, the reality is it convicts my heart as well. And it says we are all in danger of that trap of those things consuming us. John's poking that weak spot of our hearts. Now let's contrast that idea of the world with the idea of the world that John talks about in, one jo in John chapter 3 and verse 16, where it says this, For God so loved the world. And then we get the definition of the world in exactly the same way as we get the definition of the world in 1 John chapter 2 by the things that he says next. The definition of the world that God loves is such that 
he gave his one and only son. He loved the world to sacrificial pain. He loved the world so much that he gave all that he had to do what? To redeem the world. You see, what John is saying here is you can, these are not contrasting, conflicting ideas. They are ideas that come together in the message of Jesus Christ. John is saying in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, 15 to 17, he's saying this, the world is messed up and if you hold on to the world, it's going to crush you. It's going to possess you. And it is going to strip you of any hope of relationship with the Father who created the world. However, however, God loved that world so much that in the messed up state that it is, he gave his son as a redeeming sacrifice for that world so that it will no longer be the messed up place, but it will be redeemed. Do you see what, what God is saying here? What John is, John is being shaped to speak to us today. There is an understanding of the world according to the Bible, which is shaped by this. And it is probably the biggest idea in the whole of the Bible. If we want to get hold of one concept in the Bible, one overarching message in the Bible, it's this. At the core of the Bible is this idea. It is God's redeeming love for the world. That's why John chapter 3 and verse 16 is such an incredibly powerful verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life, because the world that God envisaged is not a world that is going to end, but is a world that is eternal, that will be redeemed in God, the Creator. The messed up world. This is the great news of the gospel. The messed up world that exists, God loves and is redeeming. Look around at some of the issues that are really troubling humanity at this point in time. We've made a real mess of this world. We've made a real mess of each other. We continue to make a real mess of each other. Paradox beyond paradox. We have the situation in Afghanistan 20 years after 9-11. And you look at that whole, that whole mess of what humanity to do can do against humanity. You look at the world that we live in. You look at the mess that we are creating. You look at a world that is, that is broken, that is depleting. And we see this in the Bible, that the world is groaning, awaiting the redemption in Jesus. That's the love that God has. That's you and me as well. 
That's the love that God has for you and me. He says, the world, the pinnacle of the world is those who are created in my image. Men and women created in my image, says right at the very beginning. If you want to take anything from the, the picture of creation, that the way it's portrayed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's this, that humanity is the pinnacle of God's created order. Because we're made in His image. And He says this, I love that world because I love that creation and the pinnacle of that creation, I love humanity so much so that I will take on human flesh and come into this world to redeem this world in human flesh. Because the mess that we've made, the corruption, the rebellion against God that we perpetrate, the redirecting of our, of our desires towards the flesh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the redirecting, and the mess that we create with that redirecting, God says, I'll resolve that by redeeming love. And so we open up now a new way for us to think about this world. There is a sense in which we, we have to, according to 1 John chapter 16, abandon a certain attitude towards the world, which is finding my identity in the things that we, that we think will satisfy us physically or possession or achievement. We can abandon those but we are raised to something even more amazing, and it's this. We can be raised to embracing the redeeming love of Jesus. And look at the way John chapter 3 and verse 16 ends. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look at how verse 17 of John, 1 John chapter 2 concludes this little section. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. He's got the same idea with both of these ideas of the world, and it's this. When you, when I, find our satisfaction first and foremost in Jesus, we are assured of eternal life. And then we can put all of those things that we think are going to satisfy us into perspective. They no longer mean what they once meant. The physical sensations, the possessions, the acclaim of others, the achievement, they become meaningless. They can be reshaped in our thinking so that we can start to love this world in a different way. We can love in a way which redeems relationships with each other. We can love in a way which redeems the beauty of what humanity is able to create. We can love in a way which redeems what it means to be satisfied and thankful and hopeful 
about what we might achieve as humanity. And it is this, it is pointing towards the one who is going to make eternity real for those who believe in him, in Jesus. Eternal, redeeming love is at the heart of the gospel. Some of our cultural spokespeople uh, speak into this without even realizing it. Paul said in Acts chapter 17, even some of your prophets speak powerfully about these truths. I think we could say it absolutely today. Even our prophets of today, our poets of today rather, did, did I say Paul spoke about the prophets in Acts 17? Sorry, he spoke about the poets of the day in Acts 17. I'll speak about the poets of our day. Florence Welch, Florence and the Machine, lead singer, speaking about uh, her younger days and her eating disorder. She says this in the song, Hunger. I thought that love was kind of emptiness. And at least I understood then the hunger I felt. And I didn't have to call it loneliness. We all have a hunger. Wherever we are, whenever we make those things our desperate desire, they end up empty. And our core issue is that we are, each one of us, we are lonely and estranged from God. That's at the heart of all of our challenges. That's at the heart of all of our desperate desires. We are lonely and estranged from our Creator God. And when that loneliness is reconciled in Jesus, we are freed and liberated to live and to move and to act in a way which means that we can pursue things with a different attitude. Because even in our failures, there will be success. I'm going to close with this little picture, and we've used it once or twice here. Again, it's Tolkien. It's a little book called Leaf by Niggle. Story of a painter called Niggle who's painting spending his life trying to get this painting of a tree right. Can't get it right. Just keeps coming back to it, keeps coming back to it. It's his life's work. Do you sometimes feel like that? That your life's work is dissatisfying, incomplete, unsuccessful? When we find our identity in our work through the applause of other people, that is how it will end up feeling. But when we pursue our work with a redeeming attitude, we find ourselves in the niggle experience because niggle died. And the way Tolkien portrays the story is that in eternity, he sees his work completed. If only we would understand that we can pursue good, redeeming things in this world when our attitude is changed, when we are reshaped to be looking to Jesus as the one who's going to satisfy us. We can then pursue things 
knowing that they will be completed and find their fulfillment and nothing will be wasted in eternity. Some of you might be coming towards the, that age of retiring. You might be looking back on life and thinking, what have I done? What have I achieved? I want to encourage you to reshape and rethink everything that you have done and pursue work with an idea of redemption, an idea that we might do good things one way or another, knowing that they will not be lost in eternity. If you are younger and you are beginning that journey of your career, if you are looking for satisfaction in your career by the applause of people around you, you will be dissatisfied. Which is why the Bible encourages us to do all things for the glory of God. To work to the glory of God. Because then we will never be dissatisfied because the applause of our Father in heaven will be upon his children who find their satisfaction in his son. And anything else will leave us craving. I hope what we've been able to do is reconcile this idea of the world, but more importantly, I hope what we've been able to do is point to Jesus. And for me to be able to say as we conclude, he is the only one who can give you eternal satisfaction. Everywhere else you turn will leave you ultimately crushed.